Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, Harvest. Welcome to service. It's good to be with you again. If you're paying attention at all, uh, I think you would agree with many of the pundits who have observed that the United States of America is more divided today than it has ever been since the U.S. Civil War in the 1800s. You know, the United States have never been perfectly united, but I believe the, the events of the last year and certainly the last week have shown us just how deeply divided we become. The cover slide shows an upside-down flag, and uh, that's a symbol of distress and imminent threat. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we are a nation in crisis. And on Thursday, I sent out a video to the church on behalf of our elders, just seeking to give you some guidance and clarity, because we're living in such divisive times, and yet Jesus calls us to be salt and light. And so we need to think through how to do that. I was only given about five minutes to do that video, and on Thursday morning, right before I sent out that video, Pastor Stan let me know that um, even though he was scheduled to preach this morning, uh, he developed a fever, and so he wouldn't be able to preach. And so since I only had one day to write the sermon, I thought the best approach would be to take that video and and what I said in five minutes and flesh it out a little bit so that I give you um, a little bit more uh, meat to understanding how to live for Jesus in a disunited states. Now I want to say right off the bat, I'm not a political expert, and I'm almost 100% sure that no government leader is going to hear my sermon. I'm a pastor, and my main responsibility and influence lies with you, our congregation. And so my goal this morning is not to go on record and make a public statement. I'm not preaching to America. I'm not preaching to be on record as having a certain position. I'm preaching to you, our church family, as one of your shepherds. And my goal is to offer you some guidance and conviction on how to actually live for Jesus in some of the most divisive times we've ever seen. In the video on Thursday, I offered three words of guidance on behalf of our elders, and I want to revisit those three words and flesh them out for you this morning. The first word is love. That seems almost trite because in the church, we're constantly reminded that we're called to love. And Jesus kicked it up a notch when he told us we're not only supposed to love our friends, but we're supposed to love even those we consider to be our enemies. If Jesus is talking about love as a feeling, I think that command is impossible to obey unless we lie to ourselves. I'm not talking about just people who annoy you. I'm talking about people who you just cannot stand. That you would, you would label them your enemies. How are we supposed to love our enemies if love is a feeling? So is there any practical way to actually obey this command? And I've wrestled through that this week, and I think the key is this, that the love we're commanded to exercise towards our enemy is not human love, but it's the love of God. And the love of God, one of the key aspects of it is, God has this ability to see value in someone else, even when they are at their worst. 
That's one of the most distinctive elements of God's love, or aspects of God's love, compared to ours, is that when someone stops deserving our love, it's very easy for us to turn our love off. But the love of God is so unusual in that even when a person is the most unlovable you can imagine them being, God still retains the ability to love that person. And it's this kind of weird um, counterintuitive love which God is asking us to develop and exercise towards even our enemies. And if you want to understand the power of that kind of love, look no further than the fact that you and I today consider ourselves friends of God and part of His family. But we didn't start that way. Paul writes in Colossians 1.21-1.22, This includes you, who were once far away from God. You were His enemies, separated from Him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now, He has reconciled you to Himself through the death of Christ in His physical body. Did you catch that? When we first encounter God, we were far from Him, separated because of our sin, and we were His enemies, and yet He reconciled Himself to us. When we forget this truth, enemy love just becomes impossible. In 1994, some of you may be old enough to remember this from the headlines. I remember it very, very clearly. It was the year before we started our church, and uh, members of the Hutu tribe took over the government of the African nation of Rwanda. It was shortly following the uh, assassination of the president, who happened to be a Hutu, and in Rwanda there were two main tribes, the Hutus and the Tutsis. The Hutus rose to power in the wake of the assassination, and they blamed the assassination on the Tutsi minority tribe. They got on the radio, and the government leaders called on all the, all the Hutus to slaughter their fellow countrymen. Anyone who was a Tutsi or a Tutsi sympathizer was to be killed. What surprised the world was the ferocity and the speed with which the killing began. It was clear that it wasn't just the assassination, but these leaders were taking advantage of some very long-standing, brewing conflict and resentment between the two tribes. And in the span of four months, Anywhere from 500,000 to 800,000 people were slaughtered. Many of them were hacked to death in the streets or in their homes by people who were their neighbors, their co-workers, even their fellow church members. It was alarming to see how many church members actually participated in the physical slaughter. And this wasn't with, with guns in many cases, it was with machetes. and It was just such brutality. I tried to find suitable images to show this, and uh, really, so many of them were so gruesome. I wanted to show you just a picture of this memorial that shows some of the bones and the skulls stacked up. These were the, the bones and skulls of people who ran to the church for refuge and were slaughtered there, in, in some cases, by the priests and the nuns and the church members who were already there. One of the most insidious things that the Hutu leaders did was they dehumanized the Tutsis by calling them Inyenzi, which in their language means cockroach. They took people and they relabeled them as non-human vermin that needed to be exterminated. And it was effective because it's a lot harder to do violence against a real human being, but it's a lot easier to do violence against a roach. 
When we ask the question, how do you obey the command to love your enemy? One of the ways we do this practically is we absolutely refuse to objectify or dehumanize anyone, including those we consider to be our enemy, because we dislike them or we disagree with them so vigorously. What that means in practice is that we strain to see in them the value that they hold as bearers of God's image. That rather than seeing their ideas and their words and their behavior only, we're looking at the core of who they are to see their essence, the the worth and dignity that they have, because in spite of everything we can't stand about them, God nonetheless still values them. And that's so illogical. I don't understand how or why God does it, but He never stops loving people even when they're at their worst. 2 Corinthians 5, 15-16 says this, He died for everyone, so that those who receive His new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. And so, as a result of this, we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. What Paul's saying is that the fact that Jesus died for everyone, it gives them worth and value in spite of how they act. And we're included in that everyone. And when we remember this, when we truly see this, it frees us to stop evaluating other people only on the basis of who they are and what they've done, but on how God sees them, how God values them. In other words, it's about seeing the common humanity that binds all of us together in spite of our enmity and our disagreement. That doesn't mean we just erase the wrong or even the evil that we, that we see in other people, but it still says we as followers of Jesus strain to find the common humanity in all of us as God sees us. In 1984, at the height of the Cold War, Sting the musical performer, released a song. Probably none of you ever heard this song, but it was called Russians. And the reason it caught my attention is because of these lyrics, where he talks about, in the height of the Cold War, with the threat of nuclear annihilation constantly looming, he was trying to find some way to help people understand that the Russians were not just faceless, nameless commies, but they were also human beings like us. And he writes in the song, he sings, On either side of the political fence, we share the same biology. Regardless of ideology, believe me when I say to you, I hope the Russians love their children too. And what he's saying is that his hope to avoid nuclear annihilation was not in the uh, restraining power of mutually assured destruction, but it was in the banking on the hope that even Russians, though we had vilified and demonized them, love their kids too. And they don't want to see the bombs fall on their cities any more than we do. A beautiful example of this shared humanity bringing an end to violence was seen in the Christmas truce of 1914. If you've been a student of World War I at all, you know it was brutal Warfare, trench warfare, where many, many died just to gain and lose a few yards of land. And on Christmas 1914, these battle-weary soldiers entered into an unofficial ceasefire. As the guns stopped shooting, they heard over the distance the sounds of the enemy singing the same Christmas songs they were singing, just in a different language. 
that reminder that in spite of their enmity, there was so much that they could share caused some of them to put down their weapons and cross the divide. And for this rare moment in the midst of the most vicious war, they shook hands, they exchanged small gifts of cigarettes and food. They showed one another pictures of their wives and children back home, their mothers and fathers. And they looked into each other's faces, and now it was no longer just a uniform they were shooting at. They saw that they were shooting at a fellow human being. It didn't immediately bring an end to the war, but for just that moment, it was a clear picture of the shared humanity that bonds us together, even when we are ready to kill one another. You know, right now in the the United States, there's a lot to legitimately be angry about or frustrated over. And we've got a choice as followers of Jesus. We could either burn bridges or we could build them right now. And only one of those choices honors and reveals the heart of God. I understand why we're angry and frustrated, why we're afraid and worried. I feel a lot of those same things. But the call of God to His people, if we will listen, is unmistakable and clear. That our calling is not to add to the hate, but to push back hate with love, even when it feels impossible to do. I want to give you a second word, and that is listen. If you've ever had the experience of not being heard by others, you know how frustrating and painful that can be. You're trying as clearly and passionately as you can to express yourself, and they're just not hearing you. You know that feeling? And when you're feeling that way, and, and this, this painting by Edward Munch called The Scream really depicts this, you just... There's this existential cry of the heart. You shout louder because no one is hearing you. When no one hears you, the most natural thing is to scream louder. And when that doesn't work, usually one of two things happens. Either we will shut down and stop caring and stop trying to be heard, or we will escalate beyond words and say, if words are not enough, I will make you take note of me by whatever means necessary. In either case, hot anger morphs into cold resolve. And that's when things really start to get dangerous. James 1, 19-20, the Apostle James writes, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. This James happens to be the brother of Jesus, the younger brother of Jesus. And he's teaching in this part of his letter on how to resolve and handle conflict. And in doing this, he says to us, the key to resolving conflict is to be quicker to listen than to speak or to become angry. You know, he was the brother of Jesus and and brothers fight. They argue a lot. I can't imagine how many times growing up he watched his older brother Jesus model this kind of patience and listening. And so when James writes it to the Christians that he was responsible for, I'm sure he was calling to mind the many occasions where he wanted to throw a tantrum and his brother Jesus really listened to what he was saying. This is such a challenge for us as Americans who are constantly triggered by everything. You know, the foolishness of talking 
more than listening is this. We already know what we think, what we believe, what we feel. By repeating it over and over, we're adding nothing to our lives. We already are there. But by refusing to listen, we are probably completely missing what the other person is really trying to say or feel. If we really listen to the people who are our enemies, what we usually discover is at the heart of it, they are driven by the same things that drive our lives. The desire to find, uh, find uh, safety, success, significance, and meaning in our lives. They may have very different and what we consider to be totally misguided ideas about how to get those things. But even the person you hate most wants their kid to be happy. They want to have a reasonably good life. They just have taken a very different strategy to get there. Listening doesn't mean we agree with or validate what our enemy is saying. But what it does say is that we're trying to hear the heart that lies beneath the words and the ideas we find repulsive. I may hate the way you look at the world. I may hate what you're saying and what you're thinking, what you believe. But somewhere underneath that, I'm still struggling because God does this for us. I'm still struggling to hear the heart. And that's why I truly believe that we listen with our ears, but we hear with our hearts. And, and that's important distinction to make because very often people will say to you, I am listening to you, I am listening to you. And yet you know that they haven't heard a thing you're really saying because they're listening with their ears, but they haven't yet opened their hearts to hear your own heart's cry. In John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. The words of Jesus are a clear call to us that we're not just supposed to listen to each other, but right now, especially now, we're supposed to listen to Him. Listening to God is very different than listening to people. We listen to people in order to understand them, but we listen to Jesus in order to follow. And that's the key difference. What Jesus says is that those who are truly His sheep, the ones He really knows, they don't just listen and then agree. They listen and they follow. This is the ultimate measure of listening to God. Is not that you agree with what He said, but that you show your agreement by the way you follow Him. And follow means submitting and obeying. This is especially true when we resolve to follow what we hear God say to us in Scripture. If you go on YouTube, there are so many voices abounding today who claim to hear special, tailored, personal messages from God, prophetic words. I'm not somebody who discounts the possibility of prophetic utterance. But I think we're entering dangerous times when anyone who has a camera can claim that God spoke and predicted future events directly to them. I think the most reliable source of truth, and that's an important phrase today, isn't it? Is what God has said to all humanity through all time, through His Word. And when we have got, gotten much further down the road of obeying and submitting to and responding to what God has already clearly said to us in the Bible, then maybe we could entertain other things. If Christians spent more time listening to God's voice rather than human voices, I believe we would have a much bigger impact 
on our world today. Let me give you one last word. Live. In 1 John 3.18, the Apostle John writes these words. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Man, what powerful words for the noisy chaos that America is right now, with so many voices shouting at the top of their lungs in all caps. Listen, there's nothing wrong with engaging in public discourse. Um, Real conversations, whether it's private or public, I think it's important to exchange ideas and words. But John reminds us that the love of God is not most clearly seen in words, but it's most clearly seen in action and in truth. Put another way, the truth we live is more powerful than the truth we speak. So much stake is put into words these days, but words are so cheap. There's great power in a quiet life of conviction and service. That doesn't mean we should shut up. It means that we should add force to our words with the lives that we live. Problems facing us today seem so huge, so deep, that at some point we feel defeated by them. It feels like America is so broken, nothing is going to fix it. You know, as an aspiring artist, there are times when I'm working on a picture, and I make a mistake that just... And I've been working on this picture for maybe 30 minutes, and I ruined it. And some mistakes you can cover up. You can do something to adjust it. But there's a point at which the mistake seems so... Um, destructive to the picture that everything in me says just rip it up and start over. That's where I feel many of us are today, the state of our country. We can't even imagine people with real authority, real influence, real wealth fixing any of our problems today. And yet, um, God calls us to continue. I want to ask the question, what hope is there for a church in America that is already marginalized to make any real difference in healing our nation. That's what a lot of us are feeling, is what can we really do right now about any of this? In Matthew 13, 33, Jesus tells a parable. And a parable is really just a sermon illustration, a practical way of connecting God's truths to regular life. And here's what he says. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. You know, in ancient times, yeast was a valuable commodity for its effect on dough or bread. It caused it to rise and become fluffy rather than hard. Now, a small amount of of yeast was kneaded into the dough and left to sit, and as it did so, the... the, um, Biological processes that were happening caused the dough to rise as the yeast multiplied and caused that that dough to rise. And then what you would do is before you bake that dough, you would tear off a small piece of the dough that has yeast in it and you would knead it into another fresh batch of dough. Often this was a huge batch of dough, 60 pounds of flour. I want you to imagine what 60 pounds of flour looks like in the grocery store. And you take this one little piece out of the dough you've just kneaded, and you just, you just work it into that, that dough. And that piece of, of dough with the yeast in it is so tiny compared to the huge amount you're hoping to affect. 
And the point of Jesus' story is to say this. I know that we seem like a very small presence in a very big world. But because our God is mightier and more powerful than any other, if we truly believe in Him, allow Him to use us, our very small and seemingly powerless presence can have an incredible impact on the whole. That tiny little piece of dough, given time, will cause 60 pounds of flour to rise. I'll end this way. Our nation is in serious trouble right now. I find no hope in our politicians on either side. I think it's stupid to hope in them to save our country. I don't trust our business leaders. I don't think our celebrities can do it. I don't even think that our church leaders are the answer. But God can use even a small handful of the people who truly believe in His power and are so fully submitted to Him that He can use them. He can use even a small handful of such people to transform and heal a nation. He can use them to do what kings and princes are powerless to do. The church will become irrelevant not because our beliefs are outdated or old-fashioned, but because our beliefs are invisible in the lives we actually live. I don't think the world has such huge problems with what we believe, but with the fact that our beliefs are so often captured only in words, but in real day-to-day life, we tend to look exactly like the rest of the world. And that smacks of emptiness and hypocrisy. The stakes are higher than they've ever been, and how we choose to live for Jesus in a very divided nation matters now perhaps more than ever in our lifetime. So my call to you from my heart, I believe this is the call of God, His heart's cry to us, is He is speaking, He is moving, He wants to work. Will His people have ears to hear? And will we have the resolve and humility to follow Jesus and no other voice? We're small, we seem powerless, but through us, God can make a huge difference. And our nation needs healing. Let's be a part of that healing. As things continue to unfold, and bad news assails us on every front, let's remember that the good news is, when all of this mess is said and done, Jesus is victorious. His power is greater than any power we will find on earth. Let's bank on that. And against all logic, let's live sold out for Him and believe that through us and by His great power, He will actually save this country and heal our nation. The elders of our church, we're cheering you on. We're doing our best to be faithful to Christ in all of this. God bless you, Harvest. Let's not give up. What's happening in our country may be shocking and unprecedented, but it's not that surprising. Everything we touch as human beings tends to break unless we're touching it in the power and the love of Jesus Christ. So let's do this together. May the impact we have on our world not be 
the love of our own hearts, but the love of God the Father, shown so perfectly in what Jesus Christ His Son has done. There's real power in the gospel. There's real power in a life sold out and fully submitted to Him. Let's be those people. Let us have the ears to hear what God is saying and the resolve to follow Him right now. May God use you and me for the healing of this nation and the glorification of God in this broken world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, be blessed now and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.